0: What Else with Corey Mann on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. One-on-one conversations with some of your favorite artists. Find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Spreaker.com. What Else with Corey Mann on the Studio DNA Podcast Network. The show that brings you in where the magic happens. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sip Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course, and today I'm joined by Sif Pop Writer Robert. Robert, how are you doing today?
1: Aaron, you're fine. I'm fine. It's, it's great to be fine.
0: <laughs> you're right for Sip Pop, providing you with movie reviews, best ever challenges, other interesting, interesting movie-related articles. So make sure you check out the website, Sippop.com, to keep up with those. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to start off here on the pitch, which is now that we're good on schedule so far. Can't promise too much after that, as always. We'll soon move to the coming attractions where we'll give our thoughts on what's coming out soon. This week we'll be talking about Enola Holmes, which hit Netflix today. Uh, and then we're going to move on to our SIF topic, which, of course, because Robert's on, we're doing GOATS. So we're going to explore some Dr. Strangelove and L.A. Confidential for you. Uh, quick reminder that we will be talking about spoilers. So if you are just starting this podcast and you are wanting to watch these movies without spoilers, like we're – just gonna straight up go for it. So, so just a quick warning on that. But before we get to all that, uh, let's start off by getting to know our writer this week. Rob, you've been on a couple times, uh, four episodes now. I think this is episode five with you. Uh,
1: sounds about right.
0: Yeah, you're on a once a month basis, and uh, and I love having you on every 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 month, and uh, we get to talk some goats. At this point, I've got to ask you a lot of questions to, to do these get-to-know-you questions. And yeah. uh, so I thought we'd do something, um, you know, I typically have been asking what's your favorite movie of all time to some of our writers and, you know, we've got to talk about Lord of the Rings quite a bit with you. But I thought maybe, maybe to start off one of these get-to-know-you questions, let's talk about just in general, like more than just your favorite movie of all time. See, I recently did some changes to my top favorite movies of all time and, uh, Know, I just figured to get a little bit more variety than just Lord of the Rings. Let's uh let's talk about some of our favorites of all time. So, uh, how about let's do a top 20? And if you just run through them, if you want to say a little bit about each pick, uh, you can go for it. Uh, something you feel like you have to explain, but don't feel like you have to. Uh, I'll let you start first, and then when you're done, I'll I'll go for it.
1: There's 56 movies on my letterbox list that are my favorite of all time. Um, I like obviously a lot more movies than that, but those are like the 56 that I would say are my very favorite. Um, but I think it's pretty fitting that we're doing top 20 here because my top 20 are the ones that are like the ones written in stone cemented. They're not really going to be moved around too much other than like leapfrogging each other. They're not going to be moving too far out of the top 20 or anything like that. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty fitting we're doing the top 20 and I want to stress, it's not a ranking of what I think the best movies are. It's just my favorite movies. So They mostly come as a result of experience and time spent with them. Other movies that I love may or may not crack the list eventually, but this is my pretty solid list. So number 20, The Princess Bride. I've just seen it so many times, can quote it endlessly. I love it. Good Will Hunting. uh, It's, you know, the emotion that comes from it. Just the performance is everything about it. Going to go back to back Matt Damon with number 18 being The Departed. Number 17 is a recent entry to the top 20, and that's Paddington 2. Man, I I love me some Paddington, and it's it's here to stay, I think. I love it. Uh, Number 16 is another great quotable one, and it's Forrest Gump. I know a lot of people don't really love it, but Forrest Gump, it's just one of my favorite movies ever. Number 15, it's the one that I've probably seen, like, the farthest away. That doesn't make sense, but... I saw it at the youngest age. (laughs) I should have just said that from the beginning. And that's Toy Story. (laughs) Toy Story, yeah. It was probably my earliest favorite movie. Number 14 is another one that recently, as a result of a few extra viewings, has made it into my top 20 in a solid fashion. And that's The Social Network. Uh, Number 13, Shaun of the Dead. Just love Edgar Wright. And that one's my favorite from him. Number 12, La La Land. Just the music, the acting, the story, everything about it is perfect. Number 11, It's my favorite Star Wars movie, being a result of my generation, uh, and it's Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, number 11. Number 10 is Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I love that franchise, and I think it starts perfectly, and the first one's my favorite. Number 9 is one that I don't think a lot of people would expect or even have on their top 10 movies of all time, and that's Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) For some reason, I've just seen that so many times. I quote that with my dad and my uncles and my cousins and brothers. I just love, love, love Napoleon Dynamite. Number eight is the first of four Christopher Nolan movies here in my top eight, and that's The Prestige. It's just perfect from from top to bottom. Number seven, we've got an all-time classic and the number one movie of all time on IMDb, and that's The Shawshank Redemption. Number six, going back to Christopher Nolan, and that's With the Dark Knight. Number five, Interstellar. Number four is another one that a lot of people probably don't have on their top five or even top 10 or 20 movies of all time, and that's About Time. I just love it. I've talked about it on podcasts before. You can go listen to that. Number three, uh, Moneyball. That's because I love baseball. I love Brad Pitt, and I love just the emotion behind the movie and how it's made overall. Number two, my favorite Christopher Nolan and my second favorite movie movie of all time, Inception. And number one, collectively, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I don't need to get into why.
0: <laughs> you know, that's a pretty excellent list. Uh, I think Thank there's you. only one movie that I haven't seen on your list. Uh, oh, no, I have seen them all. Actually, uh, there's one movie I don't like on your list, and that is Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> okay.
1: That's why I wasn't surprised or I was expecting it to be.
0: I wish I could like it, because I want to like every movie. I just hated it. but uh, And I think this is good, too, because I think we're going to get some differences in our list.
1: Yeah, the dumb humor of Napoleon Dynamite is just right up my alley. And as a result of the experience, it's there. And yeah, I'm excited to hear yours. What do you got?
0: Well, uh, I re- as I said, I recently tweaked mine a little bit um, to, to work out some movies and to work in some movies. I kind of just worked around my list a little bit just because... What I realized is out of my top movies, I really wasn't like so my my list is also based off of favorites, not best, because if it were best, there would very clearly be the, the you know, five or six that are the top rated on IMDb. You know, we would definitely have Shawshank and The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two and yeah. things like that in there for sure. But uh, but they're just I mean, some of those are just not my favorites of all time for various reasons. So, so I wound up I want to mention I actually kicked out Goodfellas for my top 10. Uh, That was somewhere about eight. It's now at about Mm. 34 just because I kept on going like kind of, kind of the way that I judged it when I rearranged some of these is like, you put these two in front of me, which one am I going to watch? Right. And I mean, Goodfellas kind of has a little bit of like, it's, it's a little long. I think, uh, I I think kind of the ending, I wish like kind of the downfall I wish was a little bit more concise and clear and a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so really my top 25 are the movies that you were talking about, the movies that are just like, here are my all-timers. Uh, my list, though, does go to 113, and the reason for that is because I initially did a top 100, and my heart broke every time I had to delete one or two off of the list, yeah. and I, I can't take that anymore, so I'm just like, here's my favorites. If I really think this movie's beyond special, I'm putting it in the list, and I have 1,400 movies rated on my letterboxd, so...
1: yeah. I'm at the point I'm almost at nine hundred on letterbox, so it's it would be a little bit weird for me to do a top hundred where it's like eleven percent of all the movies I've seen are my favorites
0: sure. so anyway, so my top twenty five are kind of like that and uh i'm gonna so I'll, I'll do my top 20 here uh man it, it, inside out just barely beat out interstellar there's something really special mm-hmm. about this movie. And I just I love it, and uh, that is my favorite Pixar by two spots on Toy Story three. So, and then we're gonna go Baby Driver at nineteen. That's my favorite Edgar Wright movie, and you know it. Mm-hmm. There, the last little bit of that movie is not excellent, but I love the way that the music is intertwined with the movie uh, so much. Yeah. It's so unique. At number 18, we're going with City of God. That is my favorite foreign movie of all time. At number 17, this is one that made it into the top 20 after my reworking. We're going with Knives Out. And uh, after seeing it for three or four times, I can definitely confirm that it belongs up here. Uh, At number 16, I'm going with The Empire Strikes Back. It is the only Star Wars on this list. And you guys know how much I love The Last Jedi. Uh, At number 15, I'm going with uh, Casino Royale, which is my favorite 007. This one's this one's magic. Uh, number fourteen. Uh, this is *Inglorious Bastards*, which is my f- favorite Tarantino movie. Um, *Pulp Fiction* used to sit up at like number three, but it the whole Bruce Willis Butch story arc, especially with the dungeon thing, just man, really brings it down for me.
1: We might be in the same exact spot with Tarantino then.
0: I would not be surprised. Um, *Pulp Fiction* was my favorite for the longest time, but as I kind of reworked things, that's long ago. Uh, number 14. Number thirteen, nice. sorry, is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna combine Avengers: Infinity War and Endgame here. I know you could make the argument as them being separate, uh, but I think that because I have them paired back to back, I'm gonna put Endgame and Infinity War together for the sake of this list. Number twelve, mm-hmm. we're going Die Hard. Uh, number eleven is The Departed. Yeah. Uh, number ten, we're going V for Vendetta. Number nine is The Matrix. Number eight is the Movie that I always want to talk about right when we're done with it, and that's Gone Baby Gone. Number seven is Ryan Johnson's Looper, um, which will be my highest rated Ryan Johnson movie as well. Number six, we're going with Arrival. Man, that one kept on creeping its way up the list. I actually have a lot of 2016 movies up here because number five is La La Land. And uh, that's stayed pretty firm at about five ever since I've seen it because, gosh, that movie's magic.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Number four is where I have uh, Whiplash. Um, so La La Land Whiplash back to back, I do think Whiplash edges it out. And I know you recently rewatched it and said that you just don't love it. And, you know, it breaks my heart a little bit, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> I understand why people do. Yeah, love yeah, it, yeah. Though.
0: Well, and as a drummer myself, that movie is something special to me. Right. Uh, number three is where yeah. I have Inception. And for the longest time, it was number two but for the rework I it did move down to number three and that's because man big take Shawshank Redemption moved from number one to number two man it's it's excellent and I still praise it as probably the best movie ever but as mm-hmm. I'm at as I'm evaluating favorites it's just not the my go-to movie you know there's my go-to movie should be a movie that my wife should say at any time hey you want to watch this movie and I should say yes every single time mm-hmm. uh and I 99% of the time, I'm going to say yes to Shawshank Redemption. But 100% of the time, I am going to definitely say that me and my wife can for sure watch The Nice Guys. And I know it's a big take, but The Nice Guys is my new favorite movie of all time. I don't know what it is, but it's everything about that movie that is just perfect to me. If you want to hear my in-depth thoughts on that, then tune in in a couple weeks, when uh, a couple months actually, when Rob and I are going to talk some Ryan Gosling movies because Man, we just watched that movie again. It makes me laugh. The same jokes over and over again, even though I've seen this movie like a dozen times. Like It's special to me. So there's there's the hot take. It's officially being announced here that The Nice Guys is my favorite movie of all time.
1: (laughs) Surprising. I didn't know you liked uh, The Nice Guys that much. I thought I thought you thought it was just okay. No, I'm, I'm completely <laughs> joking. I'm not surprised at when all. When I
0: first when I first put together my top 100, it laid landed around 36, and then it eventually moves up to about 28, and for the longest time, it recently sat at about number eight. But I I will watch the Nice Guys over La La Land or Looper or <laughs> any of these movies. It's it's just Man. so perfect to me.
1: I I can't argue with favorites. So good that's for you. True, that's true. So. The only ones on yours I haven't seen are City of God, which I've heard obviously is excellent, and James Bond, which whatever James Bond you had on there, I've only seen just a couple. And for whatever reason, I'm just not a huge James Bond fan. But it seems like ours are very, very similar in spirit, at least. Yeah,
0: I would agree with that. And uh, I'm going to make you watch some James Bond here in two months where we're going to talk about Goldfinger. So Yeah. So we have that to look forward to. Well, Rob, uh, second question: uh, Do you have any movie watching traditions? Like, hey, on Christmas Day we watch this, or on Thanksgiving we watch this, or 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 on this day we watch this.
1: Yeah, so I don't really have too many hard and fast uh, movie traditions like that, other than the Christmas time movies. So, like, I like to watch Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's every year. Uh, that's probably my favorite Christmas movie, as well as Elf. Um, I just watch those just around Christmas time. And my mom has always liked to watch like the the Frosty the Snowman and the Rudolph and like the Year Without a Santa Claus that kind of stop motion Christmas time movies and I've always enjoyed watching those with her. So it's just really any Christmas movies, um, anything that I grew up with, I, I still haven't abandoned. And of course, Christmas Story on Christmas Day itself is what I always try to do. Okay. Other than that, I try to do a Lord of the Rings marathon in one day once a year, but that's. Turned out to be like every other year. But still I don't have like any any other hard and fast, you know, traditions other than Christmas.
0: Okay. I don't really do any like have to watch it on a specific day. I just want to watch the Christmas themed movies sometime in that season. Uh, or well, I'll try to watch yeah. something like um, you know, Elf uh, and A Christmas Story are both up there. Kind of the Frosty and Rudolph, like you said, are up there for me. Peanuts Christmas, of course, mm-hmm. some yeah. of the Mickey Mouse um Christmas ones. But there's not any specific like Christmas that you know, Die Hard typically on any given year. Just uh, you know, and The Nice Guys has a little bit of Christmas in it, so maybe I'll try to make that my Christmas movie. <laughs> but. <laughs> Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know that I have any like day traditions around Christmas time, but I do have, I do try to watch V for Vendetta around November 5th every year. Typically that's kind of as, as close to November 5th as I can uh, really time in the month of November. Uh, yeah. I mean, other than that, I don't, I don't think I have any, like on this day we watch this movie, I, I would love to get like a Christmas movie, you know, like it's a wonderful life or something like that, but I just don't. And a lot of it's because Christmas is busy with people and like, I I go more so by season nightmare before Christmas has to be somewhere between October and December every year for me. Mm-hmm. But I might watch that three times a season. You never know. Right. So and I have one last question for you and it's the silly question. And, uh, Robert, if let's say you and I are at a wedding sometime coming up soon. Okay. Man, it, what is that one song that if the DJ plays, you're just like, I'm going, and you just go into the dance floor, and you're going to go hard at?
1: See, the problem here is that I'm the exact wrong person to ask this question, because I'm the person who sits at the table the entire time, even while the dance music is playing, and just waits for the wedding to be over, and waits to send off the bride and groom. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if people drag me out onto the dance floor, I'll move my arms a little bit, but I'm a horrible, horrible dancer, so me hopefully that's an acceptable answer if 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 there's like a catchy song from the like a catchy pop song from the 2000s that i listened to in high school maybe that one but that's just like a nebulous whatever song like i'm in the mood for at that moment there's there's no good answer here sorry to, to ruin your question
0: it's fine i i'm terrible at dancing too but man you get either the casper slide part two or uh or it's raining men and you know that i'm there uh (laughs) and i just going to go hard and you know especially depending on how many drinks i've had that day (laughs) we're gonna yeah we're gonna see how hard i go (laughs) so those are my answer uh my answers for that question but with all that being said let's let's finally move on to the coming attraction we're gonna talk about enola holmes this is a netflix uh, original movie i guess i don't know if it was produced by netflix or if it was just like hey because of covid why don't you distribute our film
1: i saw it, they actually picked it up yeah it was going to go to theaters but okay netflix picked it up
0: well that makes uh sense because netflix has the money to do that and uh yeah and kind of frankly i think they need a little bit of good pr right now so yeah. so this is going to be available today uh the day this episode launches september 23rd uh, and so you are able to watch that immediately in your netflix queue And uh, a synopsis for this movie is when Enola Holmes, Sherlock's teen sister, discovers her mother missing, she sets off to find her becoming a super sleuth in her own right as she outwits her famous brother and unravels a dangerous conspiracy around a mysterious young lord. Robert, if this was going to be released in the theaters, if there wasn't any COVID issues, anything like that, how excited do you think you are about this movie? Would you go catch it opening night? Would you wait for a matinee? Uh, Would you rent, wait to rent this movie, wait till it's on a streaming service you already pay for? Are you just not interested in seeing this movie?
1: I was surprised when I watched the trailer, but this is definitely an opening night kind of movie for me. I don't know what it is about the movie or about the trailer, but I think it just looks super, super fun. It reminded me of Fleabag with how she kind of looks at the camera and starts addressing the audience, breaks the fourth wall. And then I went and looked and it's the same director from Fleabag. So it makes perfect sense so right, right off the bat i'm on board
0: I, I think i'm with you i think i'm gonna try to check this out uh, on uh, on opening day on netflix if i you can find the time or you know maybe like the day after so i'm gonna try to watch this as soon as i can because right i'm pretty excited about this and i think uh kind of the same way that you're drawn to the direction of this i'm drawn to millie bobby brown i mean obviously she's mm-hmm. terrific we've known that ever since she first appeared um and it's not just in stranger things that she's terrific but yeah, I think uh, I think there's something really special about uh, about her. I think she's a perfect cast for this. I think she she carries that that charm and charisma and comp- confidence immediately. You can see, and that's yeah. really what I need in a Sherlock Holmes type character. It's why Benedict Cumberbatch is so good in that role because he's just so dang confident. Henry Cavill here as uh, as Sherlock Holmes. That's an interesting cast, and I'm I'm I like that. I, I think that's going to turn out really well. And I mean, Helena Bonham Carter also just looks. Uh, excellent and looks like she's having some fun uh, and i don't i don't know the person playing Mycroft. it's sam Cla- clayfin clayflin he must be a uk um star i think he's game.
1: he was in the hunger games i want to say and adrift with um shailene woodley which was actually pretty solid
0: uh yeah he played finnick in catching fire well i you know that's my favorite hunger games but i haven't seen it in a long time he's apparently also in pirates of the caribbean 4 as philip i've not seen that the worst
1: parts of the Caribbean that escapes my mind every time i watch it.
0: <laughs> so i mean we kind of mentioned uh the the director for this movie is Har- Harry Bradbeer and he is probably most known for doing Fleabag. He's done 11 episodes so far. It looks like primarily season 1 and 2, which have there been Yeah,
1: there's only two seasons of Fleabag. Okay, are they And that's
0: like six episodes a piece or
1: Yeah, that was uh, he's he's directed all but the pilot of the show.
0: Okay. Uh he also did two episodes of Killing Eve, which i know is really popular right now. Uh, And the writer is Jack Thorne. He's written his Dark Materials. Uh, I know Alice, uh, writer, hip hop writer Alice is a big fan of that show. I don't know anybody else that watches it. So, yeah, I mean, some good credits to these. You know, I'd I'd be willing to check these out uh, based off of credentials. And it just looks like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I I, am just going to echo everything you said about the cast, because I'm not a huge fan of Stranger Things other than season one, and I completely agree with Millie Bobby Brown needs to be just let her have fun, uh, be outgoing, be charismatic, because she's so like restrained and, and, you know, serious in Stranger Things. So to just see her all of a sudden pop on the screen in this trailer for Enola Holmes and see her just have a lot of fun. Man, there was something just super exciting about watching that in the trailer. And I, th- I agree. This is perfect for her. Yep. And. I've been wanting to see Henry Cavill do more stuff ever since Mission Impossible Fallout because I, I really love Man of Steel. That's the one DCEU movie I actually like. Um, I think he's great in that. And even in Justice League and Batman v Superman, which I don't like at all, I still think he's solid for what he has to do um, as well as The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and like I said, Mission Impossible Fallout. I haven't seen The Witcher or The Tudors, but I as I hear, he's good in those as well. So I'd like to see him kind of branch out and do more stuff. Um, and I think he has the acting chops for it. So it's exciting to see him just in something else. Yeah, just like you said, the Fleabag feel of the of the trailer really is what sold me. Because I absolutely love Fleabag, season two especially. Uh, it's a full throw to recommend for me. So the only thing I've seen from the writer, he did the movie Wonder with Jacob Tremblay and Owen Wilson and Jennifer Garner, I want to say, which I thought was solid. And yeah, Helena Helena Bonham Carter as well. Everything about it has gotten me on board.
0: Yeah, and you know, the I think the only other thing I want to say about this is I'm I'm pretty much always down for a like mystery, especially like a detective mystery. Uh, it's part of the reason why Knives Out is in my top twenty is because I think that's super clever. And yeah, it, if you can make a mystery movie clever, uh, like I'm totally here for it. So I mentioned when I talked with Ben two weeks ago that I just bought Clue the movie and I haven't seen it yet, but. Like just because I, you know, enough people have said I enjoy it, and you know I, I'm interested in in mystery. I I really like the Murder on the Orient Express. Um, the, the only one I've seen is the Kenneth Branagh version, but I really liked that, and I'm very excited for Death on the Nile. And I just yeah I'm um man if you can if you can make a murder mystery mo- type movie good I'm here for it. Uh, I'm not gonna watch like the Adam Sandler one, but I'll man I'm 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 there. Opening night, uh, at early access if I can for uh, for any of the Knives Out sequels.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So just in general, that, that kind of has me hooked. And I mean, I, I love the Sherlock BBC show. Um, not not so much the Robert Downey Jr. movies, but uh, that's all I've got to say about this. Do you have any other thoughts you want to say about Enola Holmes?
1: No, I've pretty much said everything I have. I'm just really pretty excited. I'll probably watch it the night it comes to Netflix. I think it looks great. I'm excited to see it. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So, well, with that in mind, uh, let's move on to the stiff topic. So, of course, because Robert's on, we're going to talk some goats this week. We got Doctor Strange Love and L.A. Confidential at uh, at these, and like we said, typically uh, we're going to talk about movies that are before we were born, so 1994 or earlier. And understanding that L.A. Confidential was 1997, that was a mistake when we made the schedule. But also, I was like, you know what. It's fine. Uh, we could make those exceptions to sometimes do movies that are later. And so those are the two we're going to talk about. We're going to start off with Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bond. This is a bomb, not bond. <laughs> this is a 1964 movie. You can I'm not to catch it streaming anywhere other than paying to see it. So The synopsis here is an insane general triggers a path to a nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and general frantically tries to stop. This uh, has an 8.4 on IMDb, a 97 on Metacritic, a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is IMDb's number 69th highest rated movie of all time. This was nominated for four Oscars, including director, actor with Peter Sellers, uh, director Stanley Kubrick, of course. Uh, Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay did not win any of the Oscars. Uh, this uh, This was number 36 on Empire's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time, published in the 2000s. Uh, This is one of the top 100 movies since Time's publication in 2010. Uh, The Writers Guild of America voted it the number 12 best screenplay of all time. Uh, AFI uh, voted this number 27 in 100 Years 100 Movies, number 3 in 100 Years 100 Laughs, number 64 in 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes, which the quote there was, gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. And number 39 in 100 Years 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary... Um, so it did move down a little bit in there in their list for that. But um, Robert, do you have history with this movie? And if you don't, what make you what made you excited to watch it?
1: No, I didn't have any history with it. But what did make me excited was Peter Sellers for one thing, because I love the Pink Panther and Stanley Kubrick being the director. I don't know how much I love any Stanley Kubrick movies other than The Shining, probably. But I'm always intrigued to watch a Kubrick Kubrick movie at least. I've only seen six at this point, but I think I've seen like the, the really bigger name ones, like the shining full metal jacket, clockwork orange. And of course, 2001, you just don't know what you're going to get really when you're, when you're watching a Kubrick movie. So I'm always just intrigued to see the kind of uh, set design that he puts into it, the direction. Uh, he just was famous for going all out when he was making his movies. So I'm just always super intrigued and always interested to see a Kubrick Kubrick movie that I haven't seen before. So this was that was the main reason why I was ready to, at the drop of a hat, say yes, of course, let's watch Doctor Strange Love. Okay,
0: cool. Yeah, um, I do not have history with this movie. Um, I had owned it by the time we had decided to watch it, but uh, I was planning on watching it at some point. And uh, I I'm not typically a Kubrick fan. He's very hit or miss with me with uh, with movies. I love The Shining and I love A Clockwork Orange and I hate 2001 A Space Odyssey, which uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about here at some point. And that's really the only movies I've seen, although I recently bought The Killing because Dexter talked about it when we had him him on the show a while ago. I haven't seen Full Metal Jacket, but that's one that I own.
1: That's one that I would recommend you watch. Okay,
0: Well, yeah, yeah, like I said, I own it. I just.
1: Full Metal Jacket is very, very good. I
0: I mean, I'll get around to seeing it at some point. Uh, I'm just, I'm not a huge Kubrick fan. Uh, I mean, like I said, I really like The Shining and I really like A Clockwork Orange, but I, I think 2001 is widely considered his best and I, I hate it. And I, I mean, there, even, mm-hmm. that, even though I love The Shining and A Clockwork Orange, there's nothing that makes me want to be like, oh, I got to watch everything this guy's ever done. Kind of like I feel about Christopher Nolan or Edgar Wright or Hitchcock, something like that. So my yeah. my my first experience with this movie actually is from Call of Duty Four: Modern Warfare, where the second to the last mission is called "There's No Fighting in the War Room," and uh, that's so no. that's I just thought that was a fun note for me. And let's let's dive into it, Robert. Uh, Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Warring and Love the Bomb. Did you like this movie? Love it? Hate it? Dislike it? Or think it's just okay?
1: I have no idea, man, <laughs> because <laughs> because. There's something about it. I think I just don't understand the historical time period enough and the anxieties that come with the Cold War and, you know, the threat of of nuclear destruction at any second. Uh, So I thought it was hilarious, but I also didn't really get a lot of what was going on at the same time, because here I am in my mid-20s and not, you know, knowing too much about history. Like, I obviously know our country's history, but you know, I don't know all the intricacies of it. So that's probably, that probably took away from my experience a bit. And I do think that in the one other war film I've seen from Kubrick, he's done a much, much, much better job because I really, really do love Full Metal Jacket a lot. So my long-winded answer is somewhere between the high side of it's okay to firmly and liked it, depending on, I don't even know what, but I've watched it three times. I watched it one night and then i had a, had it on in the background two days in a row just to see if i could glean anything else from it and i think i get get it a little bit more i did a little bit of reading about the time period but overall i think it's it's solid somewhere between okay and liked it
0: i'm gonna land on liked it and i i really wanted to love this movie i just i i think this is a classic case of high expectations that were unmet Uh, because this is so highly regarded and it was I mean I I was expecting a comedy but I was expecting more of a comedy than what this movie gave me which it's a very funny movie it's just Mm -hmm. to me the comedy is like we'll give you a small segment of comedy here and then let's go back to like just outlandish ridiculous war room arguments that I mean the comedy kind of dies for five 10 15 minutes whatever it is and then all of a sudden we're gonna make you laugh a lot again uh with some tea. and a lot of it is i think humor that i'm just gonna have to pick up and i'm gonna need to be in a mindset i do think eventually i will love this movie but as it stands right now i like it when i when the movie wrapped up i think i would have probably landed it as it's okay Uh, And I think this movie is going to land better in memory than actually in watching it. And I don't know. Yeah. And I know I, I feel like I have done my research into cold war uh, era and kind of that understanding. I mean, I love watching, you know, like 13 days or red dawn, like specifically like Ah, uh, the 1984 one, like just uh, like kind of understanding. And obviously movies are not my only history of that time period, but um, I feel like I understand what they're going for with that. I mean, it's this is very much a satire or and an overreaction, right? But there, there's just too much that I was just like, I'm kind of bored, and I and I want to turn my phone on and scroll Twitter, and I, I don't know that. How does this have an 8.4 on IMDb? And man, this better turn it turn it around quick or something like that. So, man, what are some of the things you liked about the movie?
1: Well, I'm just hoping that this conversation will help me parse a little bit of what I didn't understand and kind of grow in appreciation because I know that's happened for both of us on this podcast in the past, like with Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, yeah. or Seven Samurai. So I'm hoping that conversation helps me a bit.
0: I don't know that but I'm going to be the good resource to help you understand this movie. <laughs>
1: normally, just being able to talk about it with someone okay. helps me work through everything that I'm you know, stumped by. But the first thing that I'll say is, again, I really, really love the humor. I, I do think it works all the way through. Specifically, um, Peter Sellers as the president. i think he is so so good and for anyone who didn't catch it that's what i was quoting when i in my uh greeting at the beginning of the episode when i said it's great to be fine he has this weird relationship with the russian leader that he only talks to on the phone it's almost as if they're a romantic couple and they're constantly bickering and arguing and he's just like, there's no point in getting hysterical at a time like this. He's the one getting hysterical, though. Just the way that Peter Sellers sells those conversations on the phone are really, really good. Um, also, my other favorite line is when the, the one character asks where a name like Strangelove came from. <laughs> and he goes, he changed his name when he came over, over from Germany. It used to be, and he says, Strangelove in German and <laughs> i thought that's a hilarious joke yeah that's like my exact type of humor and of course you mentioned earlier that you can't fight in here this is the war room that it's just so genius but again there's the the stuff with jack d ripper which is another nice play on words right but i thought Anything with him is where it lost me, but anything in the war room is where I was intrigued. I do like the way Kubrick explores kind of sex, war, and madness all in this comedic way. He explores all those themes in in some of his other movies, so like sex in Clockwork Orange, war in Paths of Glory, and uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, madness in The Shining. He kind of brings them all together here in this one, and I think it's really interesting the way he does it. But that's kind of where I'm at with it just being that it's interesting and that it makes these world leaders hysterical and not really capable of being in the position that they're in to cause, you know, 10, 20 million de- deaths tops. Just the way they're flippantly talking about that kind of thing. Yeah, there's there's another long-winded explanation of the, the things that I did appreciate about the movie
0: yeah uh, man while we're talking about things that were really funny about this movie I mean I also had the phone calls between the president and Dimitri is the Russian leader right man there there's something special and you're right Peter Sellers really sells that he more than deserves this uh, this Oscar nomination
1: 100%
0: also the conversation between Mandrake and uh, Jack D. Ripper about the water supply was, was really funny to me um, and <laughs> There, there's a quote in here i wrote it down that says hey, they're talking about the, the the doomsday device and he's asking the russians why didn't you tell the world well it was supposed to be announced monday as you know <laughs> the premier loved surprises <laughs> um and their also, source was the new york and, times as well right right when uh <laughs> when peter sellers who's playing the mandrake and uh, and the, the soldier who comes to take him uh, And they're like going to the payphone He's like I don't have enough money <laughs> Go go shoot the lock off that Coke machine He's like but it's private property Is like well fine but Coke comes after me I'm going to blame you You're going to have to answer it's, the
1: Coca-Cola company
0: It's it's like they're about to start a nuclear holocaust And you're worried about yeah. shooting a lock off of just, I thought that was really funny and, and The iconic riding, riding the nuke down like a cowboy From uh, Slim Pickens yeah. Was it, it got just Made a lot more sense in context, uh, but also kind of didn't. And, <laughs> and to me, the funniest part of this movie was, was Strangelove's final proposal about help. we'll all go underground and we'll pick the top people uh, that are, can lead the next society. And there's a 10 to one male to female ratio. And uh, and the whole time he's like trying to resist doing the, the Nazi salute. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, it's it's just really funny. And then it just kind of ends with, with him just like, I can't walk. And then just... The world being blown up by nukes, and and the uh, uh the song "We'll Meet Again" starts playing by uh, by Vera Vera Lang, I think Vera Lynn. Sorry, uh, which which was uh, familiar to me because uh, uh this this song is actually used in quite a bit of things. The the one that I was reminded of is this is used in Kong Skull Island where uh john c Riley it's playing as he meets up with his family again Uh, but i i I just i love that song and i think it kind of kind of worked to settle the movie down but oh and the uh the other one i had here is the the natural fluids running joke where Mm -hmm. john d ripper or jack d ripper was talking about how how they're how they're there to take our natural fluids what are you talking about man and talking about this movie is make it, is even making me laugh, and like that's why I said I think I think this works better in memory than it does actually watching it, right? Because um, there's so this many. This is a good movie lines. that I want to go back and watch clips from, um, and it's yeah. not a long movie either, so it's not like a chore to sit down and watch.
1: The last line I want to mention that that we neither of us got to was they were asking how long it's going to take the bombers to get over Russia, and they said it's going to take us 2.5 days to run through all the permutations of, of the code to let, to tell them to stop and he goes, okay, how long do we have 18 minutes, sir?
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really funny too. I mean, there's a lot and I, you know, I could have written out every single line that I thought was funny, yeah. but these are, I just, did a couple that really made me laugh. The ones that I remembered by the end of the movie. And uh, yeah, I, this. but but again, this makes me want to go back and watch the scene of the phone calls between Mandrake and, uh, or between uh, the president and Dimitri. Uh, it makes me want to w- rewatch the scene about the Coca-Cola machine. I, I think I will eventually love this movie. I just don't think I do currently. Do you, why is this movie shot in black and white? Do you think there's a thematic element here? Or do you think it's a budget reason?
1: Uh, I looked it up and I think it was just budget Maybe that's why they had Peter Sellers play three roles also.
0: I mean, well, my thought was, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Peter Sellers was half the movie's budget, but it sounds like the movie only cost like a million dollars to make. I mean, surely that couldn't be it, right? Because Kubrick had already done Spartacus and Lolita by this point. He wasn't like, this wasn't like a startup project like Christopher Nolan doing following or something like that. This, I mean, Kubrick was an established director. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't like... You know, The Shining or Clockwork Orange or 2001, just yet. But I mean, Lolita and Spartacus should have got him a budget to to make you know this movie. I I don't know if maybe set design cost uh more. I mean, there's not a lot of sets in this movie though. I'm not sure why it's in black and white, and I don't I don't know that it hurts or helps the film.
1: How much clout did Spartacus and Lolita really give him though? Because after Doctor Strangelove is when I feel like all of his big hitters come at least the ones that I hear about the most in 2001, Clockwork, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. I hear about Lolita and Spartacus and uh, Paths of Glory, but other than that, I feel like his best and most iconic are still yet to come after this. We would probably just have to look into Hollywood history, but I, I would guess that he just didn't quite have the clout, and they, for whatever reason, just gave him that budget, and when half of it went to Peter Sellers, they couldn't uh, afford a colored film.
0: I mean, he had also done The Killing by this point, which is pretty high, highly regarded, and this was 10 years after The Killing. I mean, I don't know how much clout Lolita got, but Spartacus was a three-and-a-half-hour epic that's still pretty highly rated. I don't know that people talk about it too much anymore. I know it's uh it's Bob writer Joseph's favorite Kubrick movie. He wrote about it a couple weeks ago for the BEC. I don't know how much necessarily Cloud it would have given him in the time, but I mean surely it had to have been enough to give him more than a million dollar budget to make this movie. I mean because I mean you think about like Christopher Nolan doing following and then you know getting memento, I mean he got a good a decent budget for memento and then kind of picked up you know doing blockbusters from there because memento's amazing, but
1: just missed my top
0: twenty. I don't know how much more, how common it is now because Hollywood has more money to throw around or. What the case is, I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe Kubrick cost a lot, but uh, yeah, I, I surely doing Lolita and Spartacus would have gotten him a, more than one million dollars to make this movie. I don't I don't know how much, but I mean, surely he, he would have had enough to pull more. And I don't and I don't know the difference between black and white versus color film. I don't know if how substantial of a difference it is, and especially with a movie this short, it's not like Spartacus, which a three and a half. Hour, I mean this is an hour and a half and Kubrick, Kubrick's pretty notorious about making sure every take is perfect. So he probably uses a lot of film. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know that the budget seems to be the issue. And I don't know that there's a thematic element here going on other than to maybe try to put you in an alternate universe or an alternate reality or just make you understand that this is a real life or maybe to try to, well, this was released in the sixty If this was released today, I would, I would understand to give it like a sense of like history in the past. But I mean, this was made in 64, like while all this was, very real threats. Like surely yeah. they would want it to feel present.
1: I really don't have an answer again. Just my quick Google search just now says budgetary reasons. It had a $1.8 million budget. And if half of that went to Peter Sellers, maybe he wanted Peter Sellers so badly that he was okay. Uh, giving up color in his movie to get the performance. He was okay with that trade off. And I guess it does give the the movie a sort of ominous feel because the world (laughs) blows up at the end. So maybe he didn't want the vibrancy that would come with colors. I don't know. I I really don't have too many thoughts or ideas why it might be.
0: I mean, the only other
1: than what I found on Google,
0: the only theory I could postulate would be if he's trying to, to make a message about how we make choices. And when things are black and white, there are black and white. I, I mean, this movie is not about making choices. This is about people making choices and, and responding in a comedic way,
1: right? Their reactions to the choice, like other people's reactions to their choices.
0: Yeah. So I'm not. Sh- so I'm. I'm just. I'm not sure if maybe there's kind of that thematic element going for it. I could see it. I. I don't know that I'm sold on it.
1: I don't. I really don't have any other thoughts on the black and white, or really the movie in general. Most of my notes I'm realizing now are just lines from the movie that I wanted to highlight and we've Yeah. Same. We've gone through pretty much all of our favorite lines, but I, I do want to say maybe I don't know enough about movies as I want to, but I really appreciate Kubrick's ability to be so different in each one of his movies. Mm. Um, They, they each feel different, but I was, I was noticing, I, I can't put my finger on it, but there is something that makes it Kubrick, but also something that sets each one apart from each other. Like the guy that made this absurdist black comedy about the cold war is the same guy who made, The Shining or Clockwork Orange you know I think that's just super impressive to be honest and I that's why I'm always intrigued to see a Kubrick movie because you never know what you're going to get in terms of style and in terms of substance and message so I just appreciate what he does here and um, I'm looking forward to still watching more Kubrick movies such as uh, The Killing or um, Spartacus.
0: I think the thing that made it distinctly Kubrick for me was that what I appreciated is he's not a, he's not afraid to let the camera keep rolling, and yeah, yep. he's he's not making quick cuts most of the movie. It's it's long takes. It's uh, and we see this in two thousand one in The Shining in
1: Clockwork Orange.
0: Yeah, that's the other one. The, the other three that I've seen, he specifically really uses it in The Shining as a tool for kind of displaying some of the things in the eeriness. I mean, there's that famous, like, uh, Jack Nicholson going into the hallway of the manager's office. Like, it's very intentionally one-shot because it makes you think, oh, we should be in the center of this building and there, why is there a window to the outside? Like, he, he he's very intentional with some of that stuff. And so I, I appreciated how... It worked really well for this comedy and I think a lot of that was... Man, it, so- it sounds really odd saying this about Kubrick, but it really sounded like he just trusted Peter Sellers. It looks yeah. like he trusted Peter Sellers, which Kubrick notoriously is not a director that trusted his actors very much, at least by his process. And so I think that was the thing that made this distinctly Kubrick is the camera angles were felt Kubrickian as well as, yeah, they just they didn't cut away a ton. When you see the phone call with with the president and Dimitri there, it's, it's just one camera Um Peter Sellers the whole time.
1: It's and you can tell it's almost Sellers kind of riffing with himself. He's just kind of doing improv comedy making up this phone call in his in his own head. And I, th- I love it and I'm glad Kubrick let him go because you're right, he doesn't do it a lot. Um, he lets Jack Nicholson go mad and stuff like that, but I think it's all very intentional from him. The where they compromised, I was reading, is that he did multiple takes whereas Sellers thought he got the take and or he got the scene in one take and Kubrick you know, was famous for doing a million takes.
0: Well, and I wonder how much Peter Sellers was actually allowed to improv knowing Kubrick. My guess is probably not a lot, if any. Or he might have, like, maybe Kubrick would have entertained it, but not used it in the final film. What
1: I read was that most of his lines were improv.
0: Okay, there we go. <laughs> which,
1: Which is, again, why Kubrick has, like, a different but similar feel each time. Like, he shoots it a similar way. He has similar techniques for shooting the film but then he (laughs) lets his comedic genius run wild
0: yeah that's one of the things i love most about like parks and rec is how they would film it straight like the script but then they would film it two or three more times and be like have fun with it and like it really shows so yeah i also don't have anything more to say about the movie like most of my notes were writing down lines i thought were funny this is a very straightforward movie you gonna watch this movie again
1: probably at some point to be honest because i'm glad that i've seen it and maybe i'll over the years just learn more about american history and about the feelings at the time and just want to go back and reappreciate some Kubrick fi- Kubrick films and especially the the Peter Sellers performance because like you were saying it's great in memory and I do want to rewatch a lot of his scenes as the three different characters so I'm glad that I'm that I've watched it
0: I think I'm gonna watch this movie again too. Maybe, maybe a little sooner than you will, uh, because if this was a longer movie, I might have different. It's a brisk hour and a half, and yeah. I think it would be great background noise. And I think in general, it would be, you know, it it benefits repeat viewings, especially kind of now. I know what I'm getting into, and I think, like I said, I think eventually I'm going to love this movie. I don't know that it'll crack my favorite 114 or whatever it is now, but I I think I will love this movie, and you know, I want to. But I just I just don't think I'm there off of this one viewing. Yeah, so do you think this movie's a goat?
1: I think that's a tough question because I, I recently did my Tenet pod. And when you come to a director like Nolan or Kubrick, I think you have to compare everything they do to the high bar that they've set for themselves. And I just think out of the six Kubrick movies I've seen, four of them are better than Dr. Strangelove, or at least I like four of them better. So I think it's at least a fringe goat, if that's a fair answer.
0: I, you can have whatever answer you want. My answer is going to be no. And it's for the simple reason that I think I, I think maybe eventually I would say yes, but I don't say it right now. And the whole time I was watching this movie, I, I'm i going to kind of reference a movie that I know that you haven't seen. At least your letterbox hasn't recorded that you've seen. Um, this felt very much tonally like the death of Stalin, but mm. I love the death of Stalin. And yeah. to me, if we were talking about Death of Stalin, I would say this movie, that, it's it's a very unique movie. It's like Dr. Strangelove. I venture to say I might consider Death of Stalin one of the funniest comedies of all time. Uh, one of the best comedies of all time, definitely.
1: <laughs> it's. I got halfway into that movie and for some reason I just couldn't get into it. That's why it's not recorded on my letterbox. I did
0: the same thing the first time I watched it, but I re- I just wasn't paying t- close attention i was like on my phone while watching it and so i restarted yeah. it the next night and watched it. i was like that was okay and then about a month ago i rewatched it again i'm like i freaking love this movie <laughs> so all right maybe
1: i'll give it another shot
0: yeah i, th- I think that Deaths of stalin is great i think that i will think that dr strange love will be great at some point i just don't currently and so you know there's there's also a difference between influence and which movie just did the goal better um, and I think they kind of, both this and Death of Stalin right. had a a similar goal. Just Death of Stalin did it better, which I probably That's a hot right. take. So. <laughs> probably. You have anything else you want to say about the movie?
1: Yeah, the last thing I'll add is that I always like seeing James Earl Jones in movies because he's the one of he's one of the very few celebrities I've actually ever met. Um, he lived in my in the hometown that I grew up in, so. I saw him when I was just walking down the street one day and my uncle and I went and had a conversation with him. If only I was uh, 24 like I am now, instead of nine, when I met James Earl Jones, I could have asked him what it's like to work with Stanley Kubrick. But instead, I asked him to do the Darth Vader voice.
0: <laughs> hey, you know, I as a 25 year old, I still would probably ask him to do the Darth Vader voice instead of <laughs> yeah. what was it like to work with Kubrick. <laughs> That just Um,
1: fascinates me now, knowing everything I know about Kubrick, just to be like, ask someone firsthand, what was it like to work with Stanley Kubrick?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, kind of Kubrick, Hitchcock, I I think Christopher Nolan at this point, man, man, what's it like to, what's it like to be this close to pure genius?
1: That and, like with Kubrick or Hitchcock, they were known to not be great to work with on set, and I know there were some false rumors about Nolan with phones and chairs on set that I think the phone rule is is true, but the chair rule is just kind of dumb. I don't think he's quite in the same place that Hitchcock and Kubrick are, at least yet. No, not at all.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, let's move on to LA Confidential. This is a 1997 movie, also not available to stream anywhere that I could find uh, easily without paying for it. Uh, Synopsis here is, as corruption grows in the 1950s LA, three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal, and one sleazy, investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice little bit about the history of this movie. This is based off of a 1990 novel of the same name by James Elroy. And this is part of the, quote, L.A. Quartet, consisting of initially four books. It's since expanded. And the first of these books being The Black Dahlia, which had a 2006, I think, movie made about it that I haven't seen with Josh Hartnett and Scarlett Johansson, directed mm-hmm. by Brian De Palma. So that was in, that was intricu- interesting. Interesting. And they they aren't like chronological or like. Uh, from my understanding, my brief research, they're not like, uh, here's one, two, three, four. It's just more like sometimes the characters overlap. Um, not always. So anyway, LA Quartet. It's such expanded. I think there's seven books now. Um, this is an 8.2 on IMDb, a 90 on Metacritic, and a 99 on Rotten Tomatoes. This is movie number 124 on IMDb. This was nominated for many Oscars, uh, which was Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Art Sex, Art and Set Decoration, Best Sound. Uh, best editing, and best music score. Uh, And it won two Oscars for best supporting actress with Kim Basinger, and it won best adapted screenplay. Uh, And this is one of only three movies to have swept the big four. Uh, For uh, Time, the National Society of Film Critics, the New York Film Critics Circle, and National Board of Review all called it the best movie of the year. The only movies. Uh, other than this one to have done it, are Schindler's List and The Social Network. Los Angeles voted this the best movie in the last 25 years set in L.A. Uh, there was a 13-episode TV miniseries pi- pilot starring Kiefer Sutherland and Eric Roberts that was filmed in 1999, uh, set to, uh, well, it was written for HBO. HBO passed on the script, Fox produced the pilot, and decided not to go forward, pick it up for a series run. Uh, but they eventually released it on a 2003 Blu-ray and DVD release. Uh, and I found it on YouTube as well. Uh, right. I, <laughs> I, I did watch this uh, on the Blu-ray as a special feature, uh, but I know you can access it on YouTube, which I will talk more later about the pilot. Uh, and then CBS tried to do the same thing again in 2018 for CBS All Access, but it fell through uh, that one was starring Walton Goggins, Sarah Jones, Shea Wiggum, and Mark Weber. I could not find it anywhere to watch. But Robert, you you haven't seen this movie. And so what excited what excited you to watch this, about watching this movie?
1: So I'm not usually a huge fan of like cop or crime movies like this. The only two that are really in my top favorite movies of all time are The Departed. For, and I love that just because it's Boston and I love all the actors in and all that kind of stuff. And The Godfather is in my top movies also because The Godfather is freaking awesome. But other than that, stuff like Goodfellas, I always, or, or Casino, that kind of stuff, I appreciate, or Heat, you know, anything along those lines. I appreciate those movies and I like them a lot and I'll probably watch them more than once in the future. I own the Blu ray of all three of those. But for some reason, I just can't get into them the same way I would other kinds of movies. And this excludes like crime movies. Like it's the specific breed of co- crime movies that all these kind of fit into. So like the nice guys is a crime movie, but it's got the humorous aspects that I appreciate that kind of make it a little bit different than the others. Even with all that said, I'm always interested in watching a movie with a good reputation and a staff stacked cast, especially something from the nineties, because I've found going back and watching a bunch of movies that I haven't seen from earlier in my life or from before I was born. I really love 90s movies. So this one is obviously from the 90s. So anything that came out in that decade, I'm usually on board to watch. So that's kind of where I was at before we watched it with Ellie Confidential.
0: Cool. Yeah, I I saw this movie in high school for the first time. I uh, found it at Walmart. They were doing some sort of special run on Blu-ray's uh, where like older movies that had won Oscars and it has like, it's just the Blu-ray release, but it had a like slip cover that was gold on it that like had the Oscars that they won. So it shows the picture, the cover mm-hmm. art of LA Confidential kind of shrunk and then says Kim Basinger, Best Supporting Actress and uh, original screenplay. And it says like one, two Oscars. Uh, it's just some weird thing they were doing around Oscar season. And it was like nine bucks, I think, or something like that. And I had heard of this movie and I love Detective stuff and especially like stuff that's like set in the 50s LA so um, I saw it once in college and kind of this is maybe my third potentially fourth watch and uh, and that's my history with the movie I was excited because um, I feel like this is a movie that rewards rewatches simply because the complexity of it regardless of what you could say this is this is an all-star cast I mean this is like Glenn Mm Gary Glenn Gary Glenn Ross levels of best cast ever assembled so Um, or like Knives Out. (laughs) Um, With all that in mind, uh, Robert, you finally saw LA Confidential. Did you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay? So
1: with all my caveats that I was giving about the kind of crime and cop movies that I don't normally appreciate, just because for for whatever reason, I don't always love those movies. I'm going to put this at high side of liked it. So it's basically as close as I can get to loving it. Just for whatever reason, The Departed and The Godfather are in this separate echelon that everything else can't reach. So it's in the it's in the upper echelon, just underneath those two, along with the likes of, you
0: know, Goodfellas or whatever. I love this movie. I really love this movie. Yeah, I love it. I've loved it more each time I've watched it. And uh, And part of it is the very first time I watched it, I think I didn't pay attention to half of it. I was kind of in and out on my phone. By the end, I was just confused on where we had ended up. And the second time, I kind of about half—I made it about halfway through, to and then like something distracted me and wound up, you know, looking at something else on my phone. And this time, I dedicated—I'm like, my—I'm fo- turning my phone off and watching this movie. But I remember enjoying it a lot more the second time and remembering it. But it's probably been five years since I've seen this movie. Yep, turned my phone off and was like, I'm gonna watch this movie. And man, this movie is excellent. So. <laughs> The, to me, this just works on every level, and a big element for that is this screenplay is near perfect uh, in terms of pacing, in terms of characters, in terms of where it wants to go with the story, and it. Like, I don't feel like any scene is unnecessary for a two-hour twenty-minute movie. Um, I, I, yeah. I think this more than deserved the best screenplay Oscar win, and it's one of probably one of my favorite screenplays of all time.
1: Yeah. So I made a new Letterbox List. You came on my podcast last week and talked about the letterbox list that you love. I made a new one (laughs) with this and one other movie.
0: So for clarity, I I talked about a list that said uh, Daniel Craig doing bad accents um, while he finds out that Christopher Plummer's family is horrible and it's uh, knives out and the girl with the dragon tattoo Yes. for reference of what list he's talking about.
1: Yeah. So the one that I came up with here is Gritty movies that take place around Christmas time, and Russell Crowe plays a tough guy L.A. detective with a backdrop in the sex work industry, <laughs> L.A. Confidential and The Nice Guys.
0: Also, Kim Basinger in both of them. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> I so, so I watched this go. movie probably two days after my last rewatch of The Nice Guys, and I see so much influence from this movie to The Nice mm-hmm. Guys, uh, and I think Shea Black is very intentional about that. I almost I almost want to consider it a spiritual sequel, but I know it's not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after. Uh, uh, what's his name? Bud White. Yeah, Bud White. After he's, you know, had too rough a career as a police officer, he finally retires from the force well, and becomes a private detective.
0: And I thought about that, but the the Kim Basinger is the part where it just doesn't fit.
1: Gotcha, right, yeah. So, But anyway, I, I was proud of myself for coming up with that extremely specific list. But I really, really love the themes in this movie. It's very relevant to today. Goes into police corruption, uh, goes into prejudice against cer- certain groups. It goes into how the corruption goes all the way to the top and kind of trickles down. And that's why I, I love Guy Pierce's character, because he's the one who's committed to doing the right thing all the way through, even though I have a question and maybe this is a good time to ask. Do you think this is a happy ending? Not in the sense like everyone rides off into the sunset, but in the sense that Exley, does he do the right thing at the end or does he compromise his morals and kind of perpetuate the system I've, even though he was fighting against it the whole time?
0: Yeah, I was going to bring this up later. Uh, is is killing Smith the right move at the end? No, I don't think this is a happy ending, and I, but I think it's right. the perfect ending for the movie because the whole, yeah. it shows the character of LA as a city and it shows this kind of 50s cop department getting corrupted and how it can corrupt even the best people. I, I thought it was really interesting. And I think Xley's kind of, I mean, I don't feel like he's going to be corrupt or anything like that, but he finally is able to answer some of the hard questions. And I mean, we Smith is killed, obviously, uh, and the mm-hmm. newspaper kind of doesn't want to ruin their reputation. So they, they, they label him a hero and he dies in a shootout. But I don't want to see Smith get away with it. And I, I think also there's a personal element to it as well of you know he he knows how much captain smith has done and you know five minutes earlier captain smith was trying to kill Exley. i think i think he's he stands up to be what's right in the department because you know smith is walking away from Exley, saying just hold up your badge and they you know so they know we're cops and he by killing smith is essentially saying that i don't want to play by your rules i want to play i want to play with the way that i think is right And how do I know that you're not going to still try and you're still in this position of power? I think it, I think it does corrupt him personally, morally. But I feel the way that that the character has gone kind of leads him to I think he makes the right choice at the end.
1: But why couldn't wasn't there enough evidence to turn him in and say Smith is actually the one who framed all these people? Uh, He's the bad one at the top here. Um, I don't couldn't he have so him in instead of shooting him in the back.
0: I don't think okay. so, and and here's why is because a lot of the evidence they have is witness or like things that they know to be what would be circumstantial in court. Because right. the whole movie Smith has been tying up loose ends, and so the the person who runs the the prostitutes who look like movie actresses. Um, oh, I don't remember the, the name of it. The guy who runs that. It, you know, they have him quote cut his wrists by the end but he was forced to
1: pierce something
0: yeah um so he uh he's a loose end and and, you know the Danny DeVito character is killed and the the partner of Russell Crowe from the beginning is killed like the only people that know is Exley and Bud White and there's no I, I don't think they can get much evidence and frankly we've been set up from the beginning to show that the LAPD will do whatever to make a good reputation for themselves yeah, with the yep. with the prison fight at the beginning, so I think I think they sort of could have could have certainly tried, but I don't think it would have gone anywhere.
1: Yeah. Okay. That that does make a lot of sense, and I thanks for the explanation.
0: I think they make it pretty abundantly clear that they will do whatever with they the can totally to, to keep corruption going without sacrificing their image.
1: Yeah, and that's where it's kind of. Uh, That's where the it's not a happy ending comes in, right? Because the cops at the beginning say they're not going to snitch on their partners. Bud White says to Exley, he says, "Why don't you go after criminals for a change instead of going after cops?" The captain, you know, he controlled the organized crime. It's systemic. It's starting from the top. They don't care what happens when it's not white people involved. You know, there's there's just a lot of evidence of corruption and nefarious activities going on. So. I think you're right that it the system is going to be perpetuated, but maybe there is a sliver of hope with Exley still being around, maybe continuing to rise up the ranks uh, because he got promoted in the very beginning at such a young age. So maybe he can enact some sort of change uh, later on in his career in a, you know, and if the nice guys is a sequel, maybe at that point the LAPD could have started on its way to, to getting better. But it also, the ending also reminded yeah. me of the departed and I, I know The Departed is nine years after this, but that's just the one that I saw first where all these loose ends are being tied up at the end. And at the end, there's only one or two of the characters that you knew the whole time that still survive at the end. And that's, that's part, of, part of why I liked it. I, I, do, I do like this movie a lot.
0: Also, in my brief research of the source material in the book, actually uh, does shoot at Captain Smith, but doesn't kill him. Uh, but he does, like, maim him enough that he's suffering for the rest of his life or something like that. And he, I, don't, I don't think he intentionally it. does it, but, you know, he shoots him with, I think, a shotgun, right? Like, so he definitely it was a handgun, but maybe it was something. But he he shoots him and but doesn't kill him. I don't think it's right. intentional, um, but it's he suffers for the rest of his days. And I he comes back in one of the later books, something like that. I don't know. Man, while we're talking about some of these characters, let's talk about the cast. Who do you think is giving the best performance and who do you think is your favorite character?
1: My favorite character is definitely Exley because I don't I don't think I've talked about it on this podcast, but I've talked about it in the past that I always tend to root for the characters whose morals line up with mine and I tend to be against corruption and <laughs> in general, so just seeing Exley always wanting to do the right thing no matter the, the circumstances, no matter the consequences. Exley was my favorite the whole way through. Um as for as for performances, I don't know. I think everyone was great. I would either go him or Russell Crowe, or even James Cromwell, for the best performance in the movie. And I do also love Danny DeVito, even though I don't think he's the best performance. I think he's a fun and entertaining character in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I best performance would either be Crow, Pierce or Cromwell.
0: I, I would give the best performance to uh, Guy Pierce, uh, but I think my favorite character is Bud White. And I think it's because from the beginning we know where Bud stands. We know that he's not afraid to make the hard calls. We know that he is a defender of uh, of justice and what's good and we know he has a soft spot for women. And so in general, I think that he's the character he's a character that I want to root for uh, where and he he sometimes turns a blind eye, but it always seems justified. Like, he's not turning a blind eye because of corruption. He's turning a blind eye because he knows that sometimes... A perfect example is when they go on that raid of that one house um, where the where the Mexican girl is is tied up, and he's just like, give me 60 seconds first. And he goes in there, and he finds the one guy completely harmless, but after all he's done, he's like... Yeah, this is justice and he he kills the guy. I'm not saying that I agree with that. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with the moral choice there, but I'm saying I I like to root for him because I know he's always on the side of wanting to do the best so that's what i would say and you know while we're talking about actors we got to bring up kevin spacey for just a second because he's a big part of this role and he gives a terrific performance and regardless of your thoughts there's no way we can condone what he has done in his personal life but we're gonna just have to separate the art from the artist so we can't not talk about it but at the same time we're talking about a performance in a movie not the person himself right and i don't know that we need to say any more about that but yeah
1: so as for him i guess if you wanted to talk about his character for a second. I do think this is one of the better performances from him that I've seen. At least I appreciate it because it's something different. It's not a villain. I remember I took a film class in in college and the professor said that he always turned out to be the villain during a specific time and he's not. He he turns out to do the right thing at the end. So I I also appreciate that character and his change to want to do the right thing and find justice before his ultimate demise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think House of Cards is always going to be one of his best, but in terms of movies instead of TV shows, uh, yeah, I think it's hard to find a better performance than L.A. Confidential. I mean, maybe The Usual Suspects or maybe Seven. Uh, I I mean, he doesn't have a huge role in that. He eventually does, but he doesn't have a lot of screen time. Right. Maybe A Bug's Life. I mean, American Beauty is certainly in the running. Uh, I, I'm with you. I'm probably giving it to LA Confidential. I think he, I think he's terrific. I just... Man, there's a certain scene in the mo- in this movie where he finally realizes how self-loathing he is and how much he hates himself. Uh, it's the scene where he's at the bar and he's taking the 50 bucks to do something and the, the, the kid has already been killed uh, and he just, like, orders a drink and just leaves and leaves the 50 bucks because he just realizes that he hates himself. And it's... It's some quality stuff right there.
1: And then from there, he goes to say he doesn't even remember why he became a cop.
0: Yeah, he is the most interesting character in this movie to me because he's got the kind of playboy element to it, which I don't know how much we've seen of that in movies. But he's got that like celebrity cop status. Right. But yeah, and he he definitely works kind of around the system. He, he works in tangent with... You know the newspapers and and things like that, but he seems to have lost have lost his way at some point, right? And he doesn't seem to have any humanity for the first half of the movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, and that's again why I appreciate the character. I like the the arc that he goes through.
0: Yeah, character development was one of the huge the. The biggest things that I love about this movie, I mean, we've talked about all the characters uh, and their development, most of the characters and their development at this point. Uh, I also think that this movie is is better off that the cops each have their own story. They're each doing their own thing and uh, sometimes they intersect, but it's not like these three cops team up for a big shootout at the end or like they team up, you know, 30 minutes into the movie because they realize they're working the same case. I think it works better that it's mostly three distinct things that are going on that eventually intersect and have to work together sometimes i don't i don't think there's a is there a scene with all three of them together on this at least like in the same room at one time
1: all three of them meaning Exley, bud and vincent yeah probably the beating up the the prisoners
0: i mean yeah but that's that would be right right? yeah that's it
1: they're not there's no scene of them working together or doing that sort of thing that you were describing.
0: Well, and you see Exley on the way to the testifying against them, um, you see him pass Bud white and, you know, he calls in Vincennes to be the person to testify like, you know, so, but they're not necessarily on screen together. They're not teaming right. up for sure. Yeah.
1: I was also thinking about so. that same idea, how uh, Exley is kind of the main character, even though everyone else or a lot of the other characters have large screen time, but at different points, Exley spends significant time with uh, with Bud White, he spends time with Vincennes, and he spends time with the the captain at the end. You're right, it's just they intersect from time to time, but they're each in their own storyline.
0: Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's also to its own benefit because we get to see each character as a individual character. Uh, That's a lot of the problem with something like the Magnificent Seven is they're just one of seven or something like that. You know, even Seven Samurai to some extent, whereas we understand who Bud White is and how he operates and we understand who Exley is and how he operates. And same with Vincennes. And so I don't think there's a weak link in this cast, which is kind of a feat for I mean, you talk about Spacey and Pierce and Crow and Cromwell, which we've talked about a lot. And he's stellar. Kim Basinger and Danny DeVito. For to get a cast like that and to have them be so excellent, and nobody getting short shifted and nobody like feeling like a weak link is is pretty stellar,
1: yeah, I totally agree. I think the cast is one of the best things that the movie has going for it, though I am a little surprised that Kim Basinger is the one who won an Oscar. I didn't think she was doing anything outstanding or her role was big enough to to win an oscar i I meant to look up. Who she was against that year, but it seemed like if anyone was going to win the Oscar would have been, you know, Spacey or or Guy Pierce or even Russell Crowe, because, yeah, I don't know. Basinger just didn't have a huge role in the overall story. She played the role well. It's not like she gave a bad performance. I just didn't think she did anything super outstanding.
0: So there was no actors nominated uh, for the role. And supporting actress, the competition, the other nominees that year Gloria Stewart in Titanic, Julianne Moore in Boogie Nights, Minnie Driver in Goodwill Hunting, Joan Cusack in In N Out, and Kim Basinger winning, of course. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I had the same note. Kim Basinger is doing fine. Um, There's nothing that I would label bad. I just, it was shocked. It shocked me after watching this movie for the first time. I'm like, she's the one that won? Like, she's the person that got this Oscar? Like, and. I don't know if this was one of those, you know, she's finally earned it. Like, just give it to her. But, I mean, certainly Mini Driver and Good Will Hunting was probably a yeah. more deserving pick yeah. that year. But, yeah, I, I thought the same thing. I, sh- I wouldn't call her a weak link. but No, no. And, and I'm also, like, I think that Anne Hathaway in uh, Les Miserables is... Totally deserving of her Oscar, my opinion. Um, and she doesn't have you. Just you just gave me a big boo as I was doing that. I think she's terrific, and, and she's not in the movie, but 10-15 minutes. But she's yeah. really powerful in that movie, and I was totally in support of her getting that. And people were like, she's in it for like ten minutes. I'm like, she sings one song, supporting actress, but she does it so great. She sings like three or four songs.
1: And today. Mahershala Ali and Moonlight was in twenty minutes. Though I think he did he did a great job in Moonlight.
0: Yeah. So uh, anyway. so I don't know. I just. I don't. I didn't see anything that that said Oscar, but I, I don't know how stacked that year particularly was. But surely, Mini driver for Goodwill Hunting over her, over right. Kim Basinger. Also, the music and production. I really liked it. Uh, one of the things that they talked about. Uh, I was reading the trivia is that. They wanted it. To, they wanted things from the fifties LA, but they didn't want them in the forefront. It was all just in the background because they wanted it to feel like fifties LA would, as opposed to you know, just watch Gangster Squad recently, and it's very in your face about like, hey, we're in the fifties LA, and it's, just, it, it's distracting and it's annoying. Yeah. So
1: one thing I like yeah. when movies do LA well because I've never been to LA, and it's always just been mostly because of the movies, but also partly just because of the. Landscape and the beaches and all that—it's just a place that I've wanted to visit, and I for sure will at some point. But when a movie like L.A. Confidential or La La Land or The Nice Guys or uh, he anything like that does just like gives you an idea of the geography of L.A., it makes me want to go there and just spend time in that that area. And this movie definitely did that as I was watching it last night.
0: Yeah, I I think the same thing. Uh, this is my favorite movie set in the L.A setting in this era of like the you know anywhere from 20s to 60s yeah. anything like that i think it, i think it does a really good job at setting there and you know i love the nice guys but i think this movie does a better job of capturing that LA spirit. Um, it's also one of my favorite cop movies of all time. I mean, obviously, The Departed was higher in my list, and so was Die Hard. Um, but a lot of the reason is because more than The Departed, more than Die Hard, more than most movies, this really showed you the detective work to make something happen. And uh, yeah. it it's a slow burn, but I love every second of it. I don't I don't feel like there's wasted time. I don't feel like, hey, I don't really know what's going on here. Um, I don't really know why we're doing this. It's it's excellent.
1: <laughs> yeah, again, I agree. It's just my predilection to not really enjoy cop movies all that much. But it again speaks to how good this movie is for me to say high side of liked it because there's such a high bar for me for it to have to reach. Um, it's just not my type of movie, but I still thought this was quite great.
0: Do you have a favorite scene in the movie?
1: I I don't think so. Nothing comes to mind immediately. And that's kind of where the pacing in the screenplay comes to the forefront. It's just, it does a good job of, you know, making every scene count.
0: It's true. There, there's always been something really special to me about the initial interrogation scene with the, with the three African-American suspects, mm. where they're all in their individuals. And you see how actually goes in there and they're like let's see how he does the interviewing and he goes in there and he like specifically turns on the microphone to the other rooms where where it's relevant and he he eventually gets them to turn on one another and he kind of utilizes their example and like halfway through you realize he's questioning them about something totally different than they're trying to hide and so you see the intensity and all of a sudden everybody's just like wait they're not talking about the night owl murder they're talking about something totally different And like, right. so they're trying to figure out there's there's this girl that might still be alive and it's just like all of a sudden, it just immediately speeds up to like, holy crap, we got to figure this out. It's it's really something special. It's it's smart. It's electric. It's um, it's so pivotal and important, uh, especially kind of when you figure out kind of everything going on in the end. It's to me, it's easily the best scene in the movie kind of kind of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier. Man, 1997 was a hard year, but I cannot believe this didn't win the, the best picture Oscar. Uh, I mean, Goodwill Hunting, as good as it gets. Titanic, Amistad and Life is Beautiful seem to be the biggest contenders.
1: What won the Oscar that year? Titanic. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. It should have yeah, should have been Goodwill Hunting or L. A. Confidential, if you ask me.
0: I would have been happy with Goodwill Hunting, but to me, L. A. Confidential should be the winner here. Uh, L. A. Confidential is number twenty seven of all time for me. It was about like forty eight or so, but when I did some shifting around, I decided I liked this movie more than the last time I saw it, and it needed to go up. Nice. Do you have any other notes you want to make about? Because the only other thing I want to talk about is the TV pilot.
1: No, I don't have anything else to say.
0: Okay. Good movie. So I decided to watch the miniseries pilot. In theory, I really like the idea of this being a miniseries. I think if you took this two-hour, 20-minute story, I think if you kind of stretched it out a little bit longer, I think it would service it well if you just keep it focused on this story and you know contain it to a miniseries, not... A TV show, I think it's complex enough. I think there's enough going on uh you know, specifically with the ladies who have the surgery to look like actresses. like you could have a whole episode just uncovering that and you, you episodes dedicated to each of the individuals and I, I I think that in theory I like this like eight episodes seems perfect to me on something like HBO that's allowed to be dark and gritty like the movie was. but the entire cast was just really bad. I mentioned Kiefer Sutherland and he plays Jack Vincennes which was really weird because I would cast him as Bud White. And, and it, the show takes, at least the pilot takes place from his point of view. He's very much the main character. <laughs> and, uh, and it's very different Jack Vinson's, And I just, I, I didn't like it at all. Exley has a girlfriend or fiance, one of the two. And he lives in a super rich place and his dad is still alive all of these hinder the movie because Exley has to sleep with Kim Basinger in order to make Russell Crowe mad. And, you know, his dad is the reason why he became a cop. And I mean, if he's, I, I guess the rich thing is the one thing that doesn't necessarily need to change because he's not persuaded by money, obviously. But uh, Kiefer Sutherland plays Jack, but it's really written. It feels a lot like Bud White. <laughs> like, uh, And Bud White should be the cast for Kiefer Sutherland, right? Like, cause yeah. Uh, and Bud White, the character for the show feels like I think actually is at the end of the movie. doesn't feel like Bud White and it definitely feels like a Fox produced show. Like it's very, it's not produced very well at all, especially because this is like early 2000s Fox. Like right. it just, it didn't get the justice it deserved. But in fairness, having not read the novel, I don't know which is closer to the book. The only real things I know that are different is that Rolo Tomasi was made up for the movie, which I thought was how do you have this story without that? Yeah, uh, I think Exley's brother, instead of the father, was killed in the in the book. I could be wrong about that. And uh, the book takes place over an eight year span, as opposed to like a week, maybe a year. <laughs> well, there's there's some time jumps in La Confidential between the time that they arrest the the three African American guys and a lot later. I think probably like six months to a year or oh. more where the movie takes place okay i don't recommend anybody watch the pilot it just wasn't very good like unless you're just that interested but i i would watch an eight episode miniseries robert you gonna watch this movie again at some point maybe i i'll probably buy
1: the blu-ray but i don't know how many times i'll watch it throughout the rest of my life i think it's solid and i, I do like the message i think like i said it's it's pretty timely but i'm not sure uh how many more times i'll watch it throughout my life
0: okay and would you consider this movie a goat
1: I want to say yes, just because of the cast, but my ultimate leaning is no, because I still don't think it's as good as something like all the ones that I've listed earlier with The Godfather or Heat or Goodfellas or Casino or anything like that. I, even The Departed, I, I still think it it's a cut below those.
0: Okay. I'm going to say yes, obviously. It's a miracle this movie works as well as it does. It takes every little bit of it working together so perfectly. It takes the right editor. It takes the right director. It takes the right actors and actresses. It takes the score, the set design. It takes everything to make this movie work as well as it does. And it does, in my opinion. So uh, I'm going to say yes, this movie is a goat. So next time we talk about some goats next month, we decided since it's going to be October, we're going to do some Halloween-themed goats. So we'll be talking about the original 1978 Halloween, which I have seen. And we'll be talking about Hitchcock's *The Birds*, which neither of us have seen. So I've actually two... seen *The Birds*. You have seen *The Birds*, I've okay? Seen the birds, sorry. Yeah. There's your two homework assignments. If you're trying to keep up with uh, with the goats, you have a month uh, to watch them. So we'll be talking about *The Birds* and the original *Halloween*. Uh, but before we move on, Robert, which has been your favorite goat of all time?
1: I've actually started a Letterbox List list for this because I'm just been obsessed with Letterbox List lately. Apparently. And uh, rope still sits at the top even after the last episode.
0: Uh, yeah, you were kind of rope or dead poets last semest- last uh, episode. Yeah, and,
1: uh, it's definitely rope.
0: Probably when we recorded last week, even giving this week's movies, I would have said rope. But because of rewatching L.A. Confidential, I'm going to say L.A. Confidential is it. And I, I, I have the experience of having seen it a couple times. I knew I really loved it. I just didn't know what yeah. I'd seen.
1: <laughs> I know why you like it, and I see everything that you see in it, but it's just the genre of movie that, for whatever reason, I can't get into the way I want to, or the way other people do.
0: That is totally fair. Well, uh, let's move on to the b plot. then. We're finally going to get to the question that we addressed last month, uh, that uh, that joseph pitched to us and he asked us uh, what stories do we want to see told and we're going to take this specifically from the route of biopics um people whose stories need to be told moments in history anything like that uh just the idea is not produced by a big hollywood studio uh, because i think you could take any moment or any person and they will appear at some point in anything but so what what people do you think have not gotten the justice they deserve Uh, In getting their stories told over these moments in history. Uh, Why don't we do a back and forth? And you can go ahead and start first.
1: Cool. So I have one direct sequel and one spiritual sequel. I'll start with a direct sequel and be uh, The Social Network 2. Since the stuff with the Winklevi and Eduardo Saverin at the end of, or actually through the whole movie, The Social Network, Mark Zuckerberg has run into many more problems and controversies. He Facebook has been used supposedly to influence elections. There have been problems with attacks on Palestine due to Facebook letting stuff uh, go on its site uh, unfiltered, and they've been harvesting data. He went in front of Congress because of that. So I think there's a lot to go through with a sequel to The Social Network because it originally just kind of focused on an inception of social networking in general, which it was perfect for the time that it came out. But since then, the idea of social networks has evolved and their potential use and harmful uh, abilities have been unearthed and come to light. So I think it would be interesting to see all all the people reprise their roles, specifically, you know, Jesse Eisenberg. Most importantly, I would want to see Jesse Eisenberg come back with sorkin and and fincher but i don't know if we'll ever see that but i think i think it's definitely worth revisiting to examine the problems that social media has caused in only 10 years since its release
0: i didn't even think about spiritual sequels or anything like that i didn't even think about really any modern examples because and part of it is we were we were talking about uh, before the show about how i i, I don't know that i want to see like like even the the Elton John Rocketman one which i enjoyed like his story is not done yet and i you know i would almost wait i would almost rather biopics wait until the story has concluded whether it's a person's death or a band's definitive split or you know a band member's death or something like that you know like bohemian rhapsody was very much a Freddie mercury thing or the straight out of compton was very much a nwa thing but really specifically easy e and um yeah you know, so i so kind of that's part of the reason why i looked it towards the past but man i would i would love a social network sequel kind of kind of the with the same parameters you said, Eisenberg and Sorkin for sure need to be back. I think Sorkin's established himself enough as a director that I would like Fincher back, but I think Sorkin could yeah. direct it just fine. I'm gonna start off by saying Louis Armstrong just because uh, I mean he's had some small TV produced stuff, but I feel like there's enough in in his life and in his world, and he's such a he's got such a unique voice. Um, I'm sure he has a good story, you know, being a uh, African American musician in the early 1900s uh in america i'm sure fighting uh racial discrimination things like that and honestly becoming a an icon for that community in harlem and i i just i think there's a story there that's worth telling so that's that's my first pick
1: nice my my second one is the spiritual sequel that i was talking about i didn't go with biopics i went with two like moments in time and this one's a little it's a little lighthearted, a little more serious, and it's a spiritual sequel to Moneyball, which I said is my number three movie of all time. Um, and that would be uh, visiting the 2013 Red Sox because one of the main themes of Moneyball is how can you not be romantic about baseball and just like the power that it has, the sport has for you know people's everyday lives. Um, and 2013, the Red Sox kind of employed some of the the team building techniques that the Oakland A's did in the early 2000s. They weren't supposed to be good because they, you know, there's a lot of baseball stuff I could get into. I'm a big, big, big Red Sox fan, but they weren't supposed to be good. They ended up winning the world series that year, but only after they were, um, you know, the city of Boston was strengthened and brought together after the marathon bombings in early April, there was a Red Sox player, Will Middlebrooks who initially coined the term Boston strong which has uh, become almost worldwide since then. So part of what the, the 2013 Red Sox team did, along with just winning the World Series for straight Red Sox fans, it helped uh, with healing in the community of, of Boston and the greater Boston area just to have something positive and something uplifting in the area after something so horrific and tragic taking place so early on in the baseball season the city just kind of rode the teams back the rest of the, the rest of the year all the way to a World Series championship
0: that's a great pick I would, I didn't even like I, every sports time I could think of has already been told you know I thought of the of the early 1900 Black Sox but eight-man out is there and an eight-man out is great and now that you're saying that I kind of really want like a 0-9, 0-10 Chicago Blackhawks, you know, movie kind of in the same vein of of Moneyball. But anyway, uh, that's not my pick. My pick was uh, I went with another biopic, just Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's uh, a famous uh, theologian and Christian author. And his story gets really interesting where he was a pastor in most of the time Germany and in the early 1900s. And so when Hitler rose to power and declared authority and supreme reign and, reign and all that. Um, Bonhoeffer stayed and continued to preach and continue to minister to the people but also like joined f- Allied forces and like in secret to try to stop Hitler I just think that could work out really well. Guy's life was pretty incredible and uh would like to see i think he's referenced to in the movie valkyrie i don't know that he actually like portrayed in the movie it's been a while since i've seen it but he's he's kind of around that same something very much in the style of valkyrie would would, would be really cool to have in his life so that's, that's my second pick that's all i have to say about that
1: <laughs> nice uh yeah i would definitely be down to watch that
0: Well, uh, let's move on to the spinoff then. It's one of our last little words of note here. Robert, what is one thing in the pop culture world that you want to tell everybody to either watch or to avoid?
1: Um, I'm going to cheat here because I haven't really watched a lot of stuff lately, anything that I've loved or hated. But I did watch... I'm Thinking of Ending Things on Netflix and I think it's definitely worth watching. I don't know if I loved it, don't know if I hated it, (laughs) don't know if I'm down the middle on it, but I do know that I'm always... Very, very intrigued by Charlie Kaufman in general, whether it's being John Malkovich, Adaptation, Eternal Sunshine, Anomalisa. I think he just always has something interesting up his sleeve, even though it's always kind of depressing and self-sorry. He always is saying something real in some sort of like absurdist or I don't know how, how else to say it. Just like some unique way that only he could come up with. And I'm thinking of Ending Things is no different. It even has like a horror thriller kind of vibe at, in the second act. I think it's definitely worth a watch if you're a Charlie Kaufman fan.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm going to recommend a documentary that I watched. I didn't hear about this at all. It's an HBO documentary called Class Action Park. Have you heard of this? No, I have not. Okay. So I didn't hear about it at all, And it, except it was on the CinemaSins uh, podcast, uh, like outtakes. It wasn't even talked about in the main show. And then I heard uh, Aaron Dicer. Reference it on last week's uh, behind the scenes. I'm talking about *Class Action Park*. Robert, you're from the New England area. Um, ha- are you familiar with *Action Park* from the '80s?
1: No, I'm from New York okay. and kind of New England. I'm right. I was from right by Connecticut, so right on the border of New England.
0: So *Action Park* was up in New Jersey, and it in a smaller town, and it was essentially this the this water park in the '80s that was just crazy insane and like the owner had no interest in following safety regulations he just wanted to do whatever he thought would be fun and because this was the 80s got away with it uh and they kind of go into how he gets away with it and all that and like you know they they mention a lot it's it's very much a study of 80s culture uh, and specifically about like parenting and being a kid in the 80s uh because just kids did things and parents didn't worry about like are you gonna be home for dinner and they're like you know they they make a mention of it. it's like you know where you have dinner that day is just wherever you are it's you know you could come home with five friends and be like mom we're ready for dinner and it's like all right well we got to make five more plates like it's it's just a real interesting look at like 80s culture but it's just this place that um johnny Knoxville made a movie a couple years ago that's loosely based off of this park which was a real thing and like they they had like concrete slides which is not uncommon terribly. It's less common now, but like concrete slides that you would ride this like paddleboard uh, thing, but like most of them were broken and so you couldn't really break. And if you fall off like concrete, like based off of the documentary, I think that 90% of people that ever went to action park got injured and there was at least five deaths from people. I would encourage you not to watch the trailer because the trailer gives away some of the best moments uh, in it. Uh, but they just – they kind of mention uh, – it, it's it really the first half of this documentary is a comedy, and the second half gets to some of the more serious – okay, now that we've established how ridiculous and ludicrous so – like, they talk about one of these these slides. Uh, it's the very first thing they talk about. It's a slide that you essentially just go down at a 45-degree angle. You go in a loop-de-loop on this water slide. Nice. And then th- that's where it ends. But, like, because of physics <laughs> – <like, laughs> And they talk about the wave pool that's just way too violent. And they talk about like making a like whitewater rafting experience that's way too dangerous. Uh, and they talk, they just talk about a million and a half things and how every employee there was like some 14 year old kid that had never had proper training and doesn't care about their job. It just, it's insane that this ever happened. And I was glued the entire time, just having a good time with the first half, being like, this is insane. And I can't believe that this happened. Gosh, I, I would want to go there but not ride any of the rides just watch people be insane. <laughs> and but in the second half getting, you know, then you know this person died and and the, this happened. And this is really like a lot of the things that are wrong, this is the way that it hurt a lot of people, countless stories of people almost dying. And it just like really makes you be like, man, like, you know, behind every really reckless, dangerous thing, like they're, they do a good job of emphasizing. These are still people like these people still died. And the owner was just a nightmare. It seems. So uh, I really love class action park.
1: Nice. Maybe I'll check it out.
0: I hope you do. But, uh, for now, that's a wrap. Quick reminder that Sifpop Pop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media. Or if you're interested, you can check out Studio DNA in your podcast player feed. If you're interested in writing for Sifpop.com or want to get in contact with us, maybe send us a question to explore during the B-plot, then email us at sifpop.com. And if you want to support the show, help out with some costs that we pay for out of pocket, such as the fees, equipments, and rentals, you can Venmo me at SchweitCastle or you can DM me uh, on Twitter. Or email writersroomatstiffpop.com to uh, get the PayPal address you should send that stuff to. And please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much it actually helps. Uh, you can go ahead and search Swite Castle on Letterboxd or Twitter uh, to keep up with, uh, with me. But Robert, where can people keep up with you and your thoughts? And I don't have a clever thing. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people keep up with you and your thoughts?
1: Uh, underscore Rob's thoughts on Twitter. Robert's thoughts on Instagram. And then roberts-thoughts.com has my writing for my blog and it has a link to my own podcast, the Robert's Thoughts, Movie cast. And Aaron is on there every once in a while. So if you like him more than you like me, maybe you can come listen to him talk to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Doubt it, but anyway, uh, next week... Next month we'll be talking about the Halloween and the Birds. Uh, Next week I'll be talking with Frank about the uh, Jack Ryan Tom Clancy movies. Until then, you know we got to get back to the writers' room.